0: Good morning. Welcome. As always, if you're a guest of ours, we are honored to have you uh, with us this morning. Hope you feel right at home. I'm especially honored and thankful to have some guests this morning. Uh, My daughter and her husband and her family are with us today, so I'm going to get to spend a couple days with uh, my grandchildren. That's exciting. And Maggie was telling me that two weeks ago, three weeks ago, um, a bug went through their family. And they all got sick with the exception of Maggie and her middle child, Locke. And so when Sunday rolled around, Maggie and Locke went to church by themselves, which she said was kind of different and you know, kind of weird. And, um, but on one hand, it was kind of, kind of nice too, because if you're a middle child, you know, you always get overlooked. You know? So it was just her and Locke. And they were there in church, just to spend some time just with her her child, Locke. And um, when they got to church, Locke said, I don't want to go to children's church. I want to stay in big church with you. And Maggie warned him. said, listen, you're going to have to stand up when we stand and sing, and you're going to have to sit in the pew nice and quiet, and you're going to have to listen to a long sermon that might be boring to you. And he said, that's okay, I want to stay in big church. Now, where Maggie and Jeremy worship. Uh, they sing a lot of very new praise and worship songs. My grandkids know a lot of worship songs that I don't know. But on that particular Sunday, right before the sermon, they stood up and sang How Great Thou Art, that great, classic, beautiful hymn. And Maggie said as they were singing, she knew Locke has never heard this song before in his life. But he's doing what he was told to do. He's standing and he's you know kind of reading along. He's paying attention. They sit down and Lux snuggles up to her and asks, "What was the name of that song?" She said, "How great thou art." And he looked around the building. He looked on the walls and he says, "So where's this art that's supposed to be so great?" (laughs) Makes sense, right? How great thou art. Where's this art that's supposed to be so great? My guess is that you have no problem believing that God did great things through people long ago, but you might struggle a little bit believing that God can still do great things through us today. We are in a sermon series that we started last week, Things Jesus Said and Things Jesus Didn't Say. And we're going to spend some time talking about things that Jesus did say, even though we might wish that He didn't. Even though it might be some things that's a little bit difficult, maybe even disturbing, but Jesus absolutely said it. And then we're also going to spend a little bit of time talking about some things that Jesus didn't say. Even though it sure sounds like Jesus, and it sure sounds biblical, But Jesus never said it. Now, this morning, we're actually going to spend another week talking about something that Jesus absolutely did say. Last week, we were in the upper room with Jesus and his apostles where Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We are actually going back to the upper room this morning. We're going to be back in that same setting. Uh, The gospel writer John devotes five chapters of his gospel to what went on in the upper room. Jesus had a lot to say on that evening, and we're going to take a look at uh, another statement or two that Jesus made in the upper room. So same setting, same audience, same context, but again, it's something that's a little bit troubling. Let's jump right in. It's John chapter 14, beginning in verse 11. This is Jesus speaking. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Now, we know who Jesus' audience is, is here in the upper room. We know who is with him. It's his apostles. But I want you to look closely at verse 12. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. What's that next word? Anyone. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Jesus did not say, "The apostles who have faith in me will do greater th- will do just what I've been doing." He didn't say, "The elders who have faith in me will do what I've been doing. He didn't say, "The men who have faith in me will do what I've been doing." What Jesus said is, "Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing, which brings the question, well, what's Jesus been doing? If we're going to do what Jesus has been doing, what has Jesus been doing? Well He's been doing some pretty amazing things. And that's the context of the conversation. He's been doing amazing things. The context of the conversation also is, he has been humbly serving. I mean, chapter 13 is the context for chapter 14 as well. Chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Whose feet did he wash? He washed the feet of men who were going to turn their backs on him. We're going to abandon him in a pretty short period of time. He washed the feet of Judas, who was going to betray him. He washed the feet of Peter, who was going to deny him. Could you go there? Could you bring yourself to serve people who you knew were going to disappoint you? Who you knew were going to stab you in the back? That's pretty amazing, right? But let's back up a little bit more. What other things have Jesus, has Jesus been doing? Well, he's been teaching. He's been extending love. He's been extending truth. He's certainly been doing a lot of that. And when he talks about uh, what he's been doing, I think that's part of this conversation. I think Jesus is saying, my followers are going to join in my mission. My followers are going to be just like me. And if that's not enough to kind of lighten your fuse, I'll go you one better. He says, this is just the start. Because you will do greater things than I have been doing. You're going to do, you're going to do more. You're going to do greater things. And we say, wait, what? No. no. We're not going to do greater things than Jesus. Think about who was in the room there when Jesus made that statement. Peter's in the room. Jesus had just told Peter that, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. You'll have told people that you don't know me three different times. And of course, Peter does that. But when you get to John chapter 21, after the resurrection, Peter has been forgiven. He's been reinstated. He's been restored, as it were. And it's Peter who was chosen to preach that first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches a sermon in the very city where Jesus was crucified not that long ago, and it was a good sermon. He preaches to thousands of people, and about 3,000 of those people responded to the message. They were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And you might be thinking, well... Jesus preached to big crowds too. I mean, Jesus fed 5,000 people once, and that was just the men, not telling how many women and children there were, and he did it with just a little bit of food, and they picked up leftover baskets afterwards. Also, so Peter preaches to a couple thousand people. So what? Here's the so what. There's a difference between how Jesus defines greater things and how we define greater things. You don't read about masses of people receiving forgiveness and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when Jesus was alive and teaching. Not to the extent that you do in Acts chapter 2. For for Jesus, forgiveness of sin, the gift of the Holy Spirit, was a greater thing. And I think I can prove it to you. Remember in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is teaching in a really crowded house. And it's so crowded people can't even get in, you know, no more people can get in the house. And there's some guys who show up with a friend on a stretcher who's a paralytic. And they want to get the paralytic to Jesus, but there's just no way they're getting in a door and they're not going to fit through a window. So they go up on the roof and they cut a hole in the roof and they lower this man down to the feet of Jesus. Remember the first thing Jesus said to that man? Son, your sins are forgiven. Which is not what that man expected to hear. I don't think it's what that man was hoping to hear. I don't think anybody in that room other than Jesus saw this man's problem as his sin. Everybody knew what his problem was. His problem was obvious. He can't walk. That's his problem. But Jesus begins by forgiving his sin. Why? Because from Jesus' perspective, sin was his greater problem. And from Jesus' perspective... Forgiveness was the greater miracle. Now, he's going to heal the guy. But Jesus starts with the greater miracle. In fact, he heals the man just to prove that he is who he says he is. Uh, Mark chapter 2. But that's Jesus speaking. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And, of course, the man got up and took his mat and went home. So, yes, Jesus healed the man. But he healed the man to point everyone to the source of the greater miracle in the face of a greater problem. problem was sin. The greater miracle was forgiveness. That, that was a greater miracle than the healing of this man's physical condition. Sometimes our definition of greater things and Jesus' definition of greater things are two very different things. To Jesus, the forgiveness of sin is a greater thing. So, what about the gift of the Holy Spirit? Check this out. It's, a, it's another statement that Jesus makes that's, that's a little bit disturbing. It's in the same context. He's still in the upper room. It's in John chapter 16. Jesus said, "...because I have said these things, you are filled with grief." What has Jesus said that's filled them with grief? What he said is, I'm leaving and you can't come. So they're filled with grief. Verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The counselor that Jesus is talking about here, of course, is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, it is good for you that I am going away. Because if I don't go away, I can't send the Holy Spirit to be with you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And here's what I think Jesus is telling them and us. you got to pay attention to this now. This is not Jesus 101, okay? (laughs) We're in Bible study now, okay? Going a little bit deeper. I think Jesus is saying that it is better for them and it is better for us to have His Spirit living within us, than to have his physical body standing beside us. Jesus was convinced that we are better off when he is absent in the body, but present in the spirit. But you know what? We don't live that way. We don't believe that. We don't don't understand that. Because we think, oh, if Jesus was just here, if he was just standing beside me, I could do it right. If he was just with me right now, I wouldn't give in to this. If he was just with me right now, I wouldn't be having this. My marriage would be great. My kids would be one. If Jesus was just here with me all the time. But Jesus says, you know what? It's better for me to not be standing beside you physically, but for my spirit to be within you. It's good for you that I'm not going to be standing beside you. That the counselor is going to come to be with you. I know that's what Jesus thought, because that's what He said. And speaking of the Counselor, speaking of the Holy Spirit, it is the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, that enabled and empowered those first followers of Jesus to do the things that Jesus was doing. He said, you're going to do what I've done. It was because of the Holy Spirit that they were able to do that. Read the book of Acts. No, the Acts of the Apostles which we like to say, well, it was some of the acts of some of the apostles. I would argue it's the acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work through the book of Acts. Through the presence, through the power of the Holy Spirit, these men and these women were able to do what Jesus had done. Okay, what were they able to do? Well, they were able to humbly serve. They were able to forgive their Enemies, they were able to love their enemies. They were able to, to teach with passion. They were able to pay attention to people who nobody else paid attention to. They were, they were able to reach out to people who, who didn't know who Jesus was. So Jesus says, it's, it's better for you if I leave. It's better for you if I'm not standing here beside you. Because I'm going to spend the Spirit, I'm going to send the Spirit to be in you and be with you always. Go back to chapter 14, verse 14. We we kind of brushed by it earlier, but this is something else really important that Jesus said that's a little bit hard to understand sometimes. Jesus said, you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Wow. Ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And what Jesus is telling these men, telling us, I want you to ask consistently with what I'm like. I want you to ask consistent with what I value. I want you to ask consistent with what I would sign my name to. I want you to ask in my name. So, again, the question, what's Jesus like? What does Jesus value? What would Jesus sign his name to? That which brings glory to the Father. That's what Jesus would sign his name to. Anything that brings glory to the Father. The Son heart, Jesus' heart, was making the Father known. We talked about it a little bit last week in the same context, same upper room. Jesus said, uh, uh, told Philip, anyone who's seen the Father has seen me. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. The heart of Jesus is to make the Father known. Now, I know that I have been talking very fast, and I have crammed like three sermons in just a little bit of time here, but let me kind of... Finish this thing by leaving you a few takeaways. Just some things maybe you can put in your back pocket and take with you into the week. And the first is this. Greater things point to the greatest thing. Believing in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Again, Jesus says in John 14, Believe in me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles. Jesus went around and performed a lot of miracles. Why did he perform miracles? Well, one, because he was compassionate, okay? Absolutely. He, He loved people. He wanted to help people. He saw people that needed healing, and he healed them. He saw people that were hungry, and he fed them. He loved people. But he also performed miracles to testify as to who he was, to prove his authority. Listen you have a greater problem than whatever your circumstances might be right now. Your health, your finances, your marriage, your drama that's, that's going on at work right now, those are not your greater problem. Your greater problem is sin. And your greatest need is forgiveness. So the role of greater things leads to the greatest thing, and that is believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember John, who who, we're in the book of John here, remember how John ended his gospel? He explains why he wrote his gospel. Luke does it at the beginning of his gospel. John does it at the end of his gospel. And John says in John chapter 20, verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of disciples which are not recorded in this book. John says, there is so much more. There is so much more that he did. I couldn't write it down and the books wouldn't be able to hold it if I did write it down. But then he says in verse 31, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John said, the reason I wrote all this down is so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you would have life in His name. The greater things point to the greatest thing. Understanding and believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Speaking of greater things, here's a second takeaway for you. Our, our role is to ask and abide. It's God's role to accomplish. Our role is to ask God things that we can't do on our own, things that we need, and then to abide in His Word. God's role is to accomplish. Six times in that upper room, Jesus tells these men, if you ask, I will do. 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 do. When the Son of God tells you you need to pray more, <laughs> you need to pray more, okay? We need to be in, in the habit, we have to get the rhythm of asking God for things that Jesus would sign his name to. Asking God for things in the name of Jesus, and that's just not something we tag on the end of our, sermon, or our prayer to kind of let everybody know we're done. We are praying in Jesus' name. We're praying for things that Jesus would value, things that Jesus would sign his name to. And we need to get in that rhythm of doing that. And when you get in a rhythm of prayer, when you get in a rhythm of asking things in the name of Jesus, you'll start to find this rhythm of God responding. And you'll start to find this rhythm of blessings as well. Third takeaway. You need to listen to this one because I tell you this all the time, I can see you when I preach. Okay? Um, and I can tell, some of you are giving me the look like, that sounds great on a Sunday morning, during a sermon, but that doesn't really help me on a Tuesday afternoon. So, so this is really important. When greater things don't come to pass, we need to focus on the plot, not the scene. And here's what I mean by that. You think about the plot in a really good movie, or the plot in a really good book. It's like the overriding theme of the story, right? And it's the thing that that the whole story revolves around. It revolves around the plot. But in any good movie, in any good book, there's always a scene where, whoa, did not see that coming. Whoa. Whoa. That is really a curveball. Oh, man, this is not going to work out now. This chapter, this chapter, how are they ever going to get out of this? I mean, that's why we go to the movies, right? That's why we read books. That's, that's what makes them good, is we say, wow, that's a twist. That's a turn. Things aren't going to script. But the plot is so much bigger than individual scenes. And if you understand the plot, then you understand that what is ultimately supposed to happen is eventually going to happen. Even though the particular scene might be a little bit confusing and it might be unexpected, might even be a little bit frightening, if we focus on the plot, we know that what's going, what is supposed to happen is ultimately going to happen. Now, the, the plot of all of Scripture... In fact, the plot of all of human history is the glory of God. Listen, my life, your life, is more than just one scene. It's more than just one chapter. It's more than just one set of circumstances. And it's easy to get stuck in a scene. And when I do, you know, I pray for greater things. This is a bad chapter right now. This is a bad season for me. I'm praying for greater things. And sometimes God breaks through in really obvious ways. Sometimes you say, wow, that was God. That was just what I needed, just when I needed it. Praise God. And sometimes when I'm in that scene, I don't think God heard me. I don't think God's paying a bit of attention because I don't see that God has done anything. Anything. And if what we're praying for and what we're working towards in a particular scene, in a particular chapter of our lives, doesn't happen the way we think it should happen, and we don't get the outcome that we expect to get, when we expected to get it, it is really easy to get stuck for a long time in that scene. It is, it is really hard to put that scene behind me. And it ends up that, that my belief and my faith and my very life gets held hostage Because of what did or didn't happen in that one scene. And I can't get over it. I can't get past it. Because of that one scene. Now, listen. I am not suggesting that you forget about something that did or didn't happen when you prayed and worked for it. And I'm not suggesting that you're not going to carry scars with you over something that did or didn't happen in one season of your life. What I'm saying is when greater things don't come to pass in that scene, in that chapter, in that moment, we've got to stay focused on the plot, not the scene. I'm living for the glory of God, and my life is more than this one moment. My life is more than this one season. Living for God means I'm going to take my disappointments I'm going to take my disappointments to God. I'm going to live for the plot, not the scene. Because you know what? Lazarus died again. Paul couldn't heal Timothy. Couldn't heal himself, for that matter. Stephen was stoned. Paul was thrown into prison. There were times in the early church when what they prayed for, what they wanted in the moment, did not happen. Not in that chapter, not in that scene. But they learned to focus on the plot. They focused on a much bigger story that was going on around them. And they trusted the author. They trusted the author that the story is going to end like the author promised me it would end. And so they were able to focus on something much bigger than themselves. And I'll end with this one. When greater things do come to pass, it is always because of Jesus. Jesus is the source of greater things. You know, when, when greater things happen, it's not because I've been so good, and I've been so smart, and I'm so insightful. It's because Jesus is so good. You know, what if we were to rush to Jesus with the same kind of energy and the same kind of passion as we rush for other things that we think are greater things? Uh, what, what if we were to rush to Jesus with the same kind of passion and the same kind of energy as we rush towards the next purchase or the next promotion or the next relationship or the next big thing, you know, the next rung on the ladder? all of the things that we've talked about this morning weren't written to help prove to us how powerful Jesus was. It was written to prove to us how powerful Jesus is. So, my question as we close is, what greater things are you seeking for the glory of God and for the cause of Christ? What greater things are you praying for this morning, praying about. We're pretty comfortable praying that God would do greater things for us. We're a little bit more uncomfortable, or at least unaccustomed, to praying that God would do greater things through us, for His glory and for the cause of Christ. So, maybe this morning your greater thing is forgiveness. Maybe you just really need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe this morning you realize that it's time for you to be baptized. If you've never done that, uh, you need to think strongly about that. Maybe this morning you just need the prayers of people who love you. Greater things await. I believe that greater things await. And I believe the best is yet to come. As a church, if we can help you in any way, come to the front and let us know. Let's go ahead and be standing.